Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I uh, said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 15. Uh, come as we're looking at the uh, big overview of where we are. This is the, the kingdom from uh, Saul right down uh, right to the very end with the Babylonian captivity. And uh, in that first kind of portion, the first uh, period of time where the king, kingdom is divided, up in the north you have the Israel, uh, Jeroboam, we've looked at his reign. Uh, and then we moved over to the uh, southern kingdom, Judah, and that's where we've been focusing with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon there, the first king of uh, Judah, and then Abijam. Uh, we looked at him last week in the beginning of First Kings chapter 15. And now we come to Asa. Asa's reign is roughly around, uh, you know, 9, 11, 9, 10 uh, BC. And he has a long reign, as we'll see, of about 42 years. And his reign comes to an end roughly about 870 BC. So we're, we're moving along, but we're still only in the third king of the northern kingdom. Um, and Asa's reign is quite interesting. It's interesting in a couple of uh, levels. He's the first king that we find is a good king. Uh, it's, it's interesting, but before we dive into it, I, we need to make this general observation that will help us understand as we go through this. Often when we come to books of the Bible, understanding the Bible, even how we look at the world, we often look at the world in, in, in a, a false type of dichotomy. That there's either good or bad. There's either black or white. There's either, uh, you know, uh, whatever you look at, we normally just say one or the other. And that can be helpful, but it also can be harmful. And it can be helpful in the sense that it's right. These are the categories that they use in, in the Bible. That he was a good king. He was a bad king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So there's, there's a, a good sense where we can read that and read through the Bible and understand good and bad. It's good when we look at, uh, you know, the New Testament, the Old Testament, when we see uh, inside, outside. We see Ishmael and we see Isaac. We see Esau. We have, see Jacob. We see these two categories of in the covenant, outside the covenant uh, of, of faith, and we see these portions and we can understand those things. Uh, however, it's harmful in the sense when we look at that and we merely just use that as our lens to be able to understand it. And we think everything that's on the good side is good. Um, and we'll see that today. And I think that's very helpful for us to be able to see this, this dichotomy here as we look at king's reigns, because it helps us, not because David was a good king. That's that first point. It's a positive thing. It's a helpful thing for us to categorize. David was a good king. Saul was a bad king. It's good for us to be able to put those categories there. However, David did bad things as a good king. And still his, his relationship with the Lord was unchanged in that sense. Um, so we begin now. Uh, with uh, Asa's reign in verse 9 and 10, where in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, so comparative thing, Jeroboam's reign was longer than Rehoboam's reign uh, and uh, Bijam's reign. Um, 
And so here in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. Shalom. Um, now, just a brief comment here. If you remember Abijam's uh, mother's name was also um, of the same uh, name. Uh, Makkah, uh, the daughter of Abishalom. Um, so, uh, here we see that here we have uh, Rehoboam, Abijam, and then Asa. And they're mentioned, and, and right at the very end, in verse 8, we see that Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So, we have this uh, connection here, and a question, how does this work? Um, again, Matthew says that Abijam is, uh, is the father of Asaph, uh, Asaph, with a PH at the end, that's how he spells it. Um, now, some have suggested that this term is a broader term. As we mentioned last week, that Rehoboam had a father, um, uh, Abijam had a father, Rehoboam, but also he has a father, David. And so there's these two terms where the Bible uses the term father to be able to mean one biological father, uh, you know, as we would speak of dad or a father. We'd, and then they have another sense where they're talking about grandfather or a, a father back in generations. And so here... Uh, it could just be that broader term that he, his um, grandmother's name was Makkah. Now, others have suggested that this is a more of uh, some form of incest here that occurred during this time. Um, now, just a, a comment on that. I think it's strange. The Bible normally, uh, when things like this happen, normally have some form of comment to, to heighten that grievous type of sin. Um, the Bible is not trying to hide anything when it comes to sin. And uh, so, you know, in other parts, uh, strongly rebuked in the Bible, it, it seems strange that there's a comment here that uh, it, it leads to some form of incestual relationship that had caused for uh, Asa to be able to come about. Um, and it just seems strange that it doesn't have a mention. So I'm inclined to be able to see that that is a broader term because uh, his, his grandmother, uh, Makkah, actually comes up later. And that's an important thing here why I think it's mentioned in this time. With Abijam, it's mentioned because um, we find out there, here's that relationship of, of how he and, and Rehoboam, how... Um, this type of false worship comes into being. And here I think it's related because of the, what's mentioned uh, down the track. So um, here I think it's more of that uh, distant relative uh, use of the word. But we come to a surprise. In verse 11, we come to a very strange, a strange statement that we haven't come across before. And that's what it says in verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father, had done. So again, there's that term, his father used in that broader sense of not a biological immediate father, but a distant a biological father. And so here we see that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we're actually told what he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We see often there's, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He continued the practice that his father had done, 
uh, introducing last week of um, Abijam as he, he brings this all in, as he sets up all these false uh, worships as Rehoboam did as well. But here uh, in verse 12 and 15, we find out what this actually means, he, what he did, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 12, he says, He put away male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image of the Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord his, all his days. And he brought into the house the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. So here we see uh, he does what was right, and it's based here, uh, unpacked, about his action towards these false practices of worship that had been established, uh, ultimately right back to the very beginning underneath Solomon with the love of his foreign wives and this, these practices that crept in to uh, Israel, uh, the joint kingdom at this point. Rehoboam continues the practices, setting up more of these abominable practices. Abijam comes in and he continues that. And here Asa takes a pivotal shift in what he does. He puts away all these male cult prostitutes of land. This is a practice that is, is, is general. It, it seems quite a strange thing for us to be able to think about, uh, worshiping uh, any form of God through this sense. But as we look in culture, we understand that we've just moved outside of temples into the whole world to be able to worship in this way. Uh, elevating self. But here he puts the, the male cult prostitutes out of land. He removes all the idols that his fathers had made. He removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother. I think this is why it's mentioned at this point. Makkah is still alive. Abijam doesn't have a very long reign. And Makkah's queen mother is this, is, carries some form of official title here um, that she uh, continues to be able to have some uh, esteem And here Asa makes a difficult decision to be able to remove his grandmother from this position. She's, she's leading the people astray by setting up all these false idols, especially one to Asherah. And uh, here he, we specifically see Asa not only removes her from that position, but cuts down the idol that she had made, the image, and burned it in the brook Kidron. And then also we see one final thing there at the very end that he brings into the house of the Lord sacred gifts that his father and his own sacred gifts of silver, gold, and vessels. And I think this is important when we think about later in the chapter. But here he carries this and, and brings the house. Remember, uh, the king of Egypt came in and took a lot of the gold out of the house, and now he's, he's putting it back in there um, to be able to do this. Now we need to understand here, we see why he's a good king, Right? We see he's a good king because he does good things. He, does, he removes all these false practices and all these things. But we also see that he's not a perfect king. And often when we think of good and bad, we think of perfect in that sense that he, he does everything exactly right. But we have this reminder here in verse 14, but the high places were not taken away. Now, some have suggested that when they speak of high places, they're not speaking of worshiping false gods. What they're speaking of is the practice of worshiping God, Yahweh, in a false way. 
So when we first met Solomon in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, one of the things he was, he was, he was worshipping the Lord, but he was worshipping the Lord in the high places. This is a practice that has, has happened throughout all the, um, the other nations. They see the higher elevation as a closer way to be able to seek, to be able to find God, connect with God. And so they would set up high places in all these different places. You know, this is a good high place because he hears my prayer in this high place. A very superstitious type of understanding of, of worshiping their gods. And, and so there was high places all over uh, Judah and Israel. They were set up under every tree on every high place. And here um, Asa doesn't remove the high places. Now, I don't necessarily, there could be truth to that, that here they are, people are going to worship. But I think what is heightened, what is key throughout all this time is not merely just the, the house of the Lord is a central part of where the worship of God is to happen. The, word, the house of the Lord will be a, a, a key figure, you might say, of how people relate to the Lord. And as they're cast out, as the temple's destroyed, it shows the, the distant nature of the people of God from God himself. Now, out of the eight good kings that we see, all of them are in Judah, out of the eight good kings, six of them will have this statement made about them, that they're good, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but they did not remove the high places. Only two of the high kings, uh, over, uh, two of the kings actually are mentioned that they actually removed the high places, Josiah and Hezekiah. The, all the other eight kings who do good things... They don't remove the high places. And I think this, this goes to show that, that, that their reform goes to a certain extent to an, a certain point. And uh, their reform doesn't go all the way. And so we're reminded last time, Abijah, uh, when he met in, in Chronicles, that portrait that we saw in, in the Chroniclers' uh, understanding, was he boasted about what they did how they worshipped in the temple, how they didn't have false priests set up, how they had all the ta- bread on the table of presence, and how they uh, did all these type of things. They worshipped in the correct way. And Abijam's boast, as he faced Jeroboam, was uh, we do all the good things. We do all the right things, and you do all the wrong things. You have forsaken the Lord. Whereas we find out in Kings that that's not the case. His heart was not holy after the Lord. However, the, what we see here in verse uh, 14 is that here, even though he did not reform to the extent of getting rid of the high places, his st- heart was still uh, towards the Lord his God, wholly true to the Lord his God, as we saw earlier in verse 11, that here he, he did what was right as his father David had done. Now, as just a, a comment here, I find it difficult. Um, obviously, we're meant to be reading uh, Kings and Chronicles together, as the author is always constantly refer back. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? So there's always another story to be told. Um, and so we're going to have a hard time be able to go through First Kings if we're going through Second Chronicles and, and as well. Um, now, Asa's reign in, in 2 Chronicles is actually three chapters long, chapter 14, 15, and 16. Three chapters long. Here we only have it in a, in a short little stint. So for me, who, who finds it hard to be able to preach on just a small sliver of verses, to be able to jump over and try and summarize 
uh, three chapters is going to be quite a tall thing. However, let's notice a couple of things here. Uh, we look at here uh, Asa's reign and how he kind of does these things. But what, one clear thing that we find in the, the book of St. Chronicles is that here um, we find that he comes to this conclusion of being able to remove all these false things through the word of a prophet. In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 8, we see, see as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, uh, the son of Obed, and he took courage and put away the decibel, uh, detestable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken from the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule in the house of the Lord. So here... Uh, we see Asa's reform and response comes not because he merely just looked out and said, you know what, I think it's time we just change how we worship God. It was through a prophet who comes to him. So it's through the mouth of the prophet, through the word of the Lord, that he does this. Now, why is this not mentioned in the book of Kings? Uh, you know, you're, you're left, it's not mentioned, so we're not told why. Uh, it's all up to speculation. Uh, it's not that prophets are absent in the book of 1 Kings. We'll see clearly they take a, a key role with Elijah and Elisha. Um, but I think the focus of two books is quite something quite different. Uh, I think Kings, you might say, looks more at the, the national level of, um, of the nation uh, in contrast uh, to, to more... Kings is more political and Chronicles is more theological. I think it's, it's dangerous then to be able to say that, again, that dichotomy that's either one or the other. Obviously, there's theological aspects in the book of Kings. But uh, uh, the, one of the key things in, in Chronicles is, is the role of the temple. And uh, maybe one day we'll uh, spend a bit of time with the contrast. Why are they so different? Uh, liberals love to be able to point out the differences between the two. They never contradict each other. However, they love to be able to point out that they're different. And uh, I think there's many reasons. As, as they're, they're not hiding and saying, well, this is the only true story. They're actually saying, go read the other story. There's more things to be said over here that aren't uh, read in this. Um, but I think that helps us to be able to understand um, here in... in um, Chronicles that the role of priests and prophets and kings plays a really important relationship between the two and how they relate to the Lord. So we see that there. But uh, I think, again, it's that dangerous, it's either this or that type of thinking that can get us in trouble. Both books discuss both things and look at both different aspects. As, as we see throughout, as I've referenced before, that here, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Here, here's another reference. Again, you'll see this time and time again that here we're meant to be seeing these, these stories not as two opposed stories that are told to two different people, but they're meant to be told together. And again, uh, we find the, the, the authors of the Bible, the prophets, either Azariah or Hananiah, uh, you know. Um, but here, Asa hears the prophet, and he responds to the prophet, and he responds by carrying out this reform. And I think this is a good thing for us to be able to pause and to be able to consider in the life of a believer. Again, as we look at Asa, Asa does not live the perfect life. Actually, no one in the Bible lives the perfect life beside Jesus. That's what we're told, that he's the only sinless one. But here, um, 
he's not perfect, and yet he has delivered a true believer response to a rebuke. Think of Saul. Saul, when he was confronted by Samuel, and how does he respond? Well, he responds and says, well, it's the people. It's, it's the response of an unbeliever to be able to blame other people. And even at the end, when he's, he's forced to be able to repent, you might say, he, he cries out and says, please forgive me, as only that other people might be able to see him. He doesn't want to lose the king, the crown on his head. However, David, when he's confronted by Nathan, both of them sin. But yet, both of them, when confronted by a prophet, have a different response. And the true believer hears the prophet repents, whereas a false believer does not. It's not that they're perfect, it's how they respond to the Word of God. You think about that as, as Jesus warns us in the Gospel of Matthew about how we're to handle sin. And the first step is where to go to our brother and to confront them, talk to them. And then what the ongoing process of church discipline, I like to call it church discipleship, is that ultimately the response is that they're cast out of the church, not necessarily because of their original sin. It's their failure to repent when confronted by someone, when confronted by the elders, when told to the church, that their failure to repent. And I think that's really important here as we look at Asa. Asa takes this on and he reforms the nation of Israel. And I think that's important when we think about 1 Kings and understand the, the story of 1 Kings. And what's one key thing that keeps on coming up is worship. worship. Again, we think of good and bad. But what is, what is the height of a good king? Is a good king who, who worships God. Often we're not told, are they murderers? Are they adulterers? Are they liars? Are they stealers? Are they coveters? Do they honor their parents? We're not necessarily told those specific parts, if they're good or bad kings. What we're told is how they respond to the first table of law, how they worship the Lord. And I think this is important. Time and time again, this important practice of worship will continue to come up in the book of Kings, such as making idols, making their own worship. And when we think of a king doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord... It comes down to be able to um, think about what God has done first and foremost. Again, we come back to that verse 14. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Now here Asa shows his heart to the Lord. Not perfectly, but he was still wholly true to the Lord all of his days. We'll come back to that again. But again, when we think about good and evil, bad, we often think of perfection. But if that's the category, then we're never going to be able to find that perfection until we look to Christ, until Christ comes. That David can still love the Lord wholly and truly and still be a sinner. So too with Asa. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's still sin. It's still sinful. But we see him reform in many ways. And the faulty and flawed, yet faulty and flawed, but yet still the Lord commends him in his word because of his heart. And again, many people take this false dichotomy of good and bad and then seek to be able to apply it. 
And they say, well, it's all about the heart. It doesn't matter what you do, as long as you have the right heart. It doesn't matter how you worship God, as long as you have the right heart. And they elevate the heart aspect of worship over what you actually do. And I think that's quite dangerous. Because when you look at Asa, it's not that Asa merely just didn't care about how he was worshipped. He just had a good heart. His heart drove him to be able to change and make these changes. But then we have the other side, which is also very dangerous. It's all about what you do. And that will always lead us to some form of sense of like the Pharisees, where we just pick and choose what we do, that we can have a perfect uh, report card. But the Bible shows these two go hand in hand, that the heart is vital, but the heart, the true heart of the believer, leads to true understanding of obeying what God says in his word. Notice that Asa still loves the Lord, but he's not perfect. But yet, we always see that when it says that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, they always make a radical change to the false worship that preceded them. Maybe not perfectly, but they always made a change. So we think there's this false dichotomy that says it's, it's, it's obeying God or the heart. And I think there's this false dichotomy and it elevates, especially in evangelicalism, that says the heart is what's important. And it is! but to the extent where they say that it doesn't matter what else you do. But then Asa's reign is also divided into two parts in the book of Kings. First looks at his, uh, his heart, his, his change in, in reform and worship. And the second looks more at his, his political relationships. We see that there's a battle here that happens in verses 16 and 17. There was war between Asa and Bashah, the king of Israel, all their days. Bashah, the king of Israel, went against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So the author of Kings just introduces this other king. We, we met Jeroboam right at the very beginning in the 20th year where Asa begins to reign. And then we jump to Bashah. And uh, Bashah is the third king of Israel. So you have uh, uh, Jeroboam, uh, Nadab, and then uh, Bashah. Uh, the king just just glances over this point, doesn't introduce who it is, rather that he's the king of the northern kingdom. Um, now he builds this uh, place in Ramah. Now Ramah is that uh, great place we looked at in, in when we were studying 1 Samuel. But it's very, very strategic. That here you have the northern kingdom, and you have the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem's almost to the north of the northern kingdom. And here he builds Ramah, right to be able to stop anyone trying to come down to Jerusalem. Not merely just to be able to come down to be able to worship them, as Jeroboam sought. Well, if they go down there and worship, then they'll return to Rehoboam. But they sought to be able to stop him, not merely from coming down to worship, but anyone to be able to come. It's a huge economical route down there. And he's seeking to be able to cut all ties that anyone would need to be able to go down there. So he builds there in Ramah. 
And so it limits the wealth, the eco, uh, an economic understanding there of what's happening in Jerusalem. And so, and also what we need to understand is down south in Egypt, another key route, we have this opposition as well there in Egypt during this time as well. So Jerusalem, Judah, can be somewhat cut off from all the other sources of economic uh, places for them to be able to um, survive well. Now we'll get to know more, more about Bashar next week, where he comes from in these two nations, but we need to understand here's this war that's happening uh, right there in uh, Ramah. Um, so what happens is we see in uh, verses 18 to 19, Asa's response. Asa, uh, then Asa took all the silver and gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to uh, Ben-Hadad, the son of uh, uh, Tabimon, the son of Hezion, the king of uh, Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and yours. Uh, behold, I am sending you uh, to pr- uh, you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with King Bashar, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ijon, Dan, uh, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all uh, Chinnaroth, with all, uh, all the land of Naphtali. So here, Asa seeks to be able to find some uh, relief in this. Uh, Rama's cutting them off, and so he, he goes to be able to go right at the very top, uh, Assyria, above um, Israel, and ask them to be able to make a covenant with him, uh, to be able to come down, and uh, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, a uh, very common name that is, is repeated throughout there. Ben-Hadad is, is uh, uh, you know, um, there's many Charleses, uh, King Charleses. There's many King Jameses. There's not just one. And, and so, too, uh, there's many ben, uh, King Ben-Hadads uh, during this period. Um, but here, uh, listens to Asa, and he comes down. He goes right to the very top of Israel in, in Naphtali. And he starts a war there, and, and here uh, King Bashar needs to do something. Um, this is exactly what covenants were done in the old time. You would have a, a, a covenant, a, a suzerain, a vessel, a, a king with a mighty army, and say, protect us, and we'll give you something in return. Here, uh, the gold, the silver is the gift in return. Um, so he goes to, to the king Ben-Hadad um, to be able to make this alliance with him. Ben-Hadad defeats all these major cities, distracting from this building campaign down in the south. And uh, so we see this defeat. Uh, Bashar hears about it in verses 21. And he stops building Ramah, and he lived in uh, Tizra. And the king Asa made a proclamation to all of Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, uh, with which uh, Bashar had been building. And with them, King Asa built uh, Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. So here, 
He goes, uh, defeats uh, Bashar, retreats. He stops building Ramah. Um, they go in, take all the building materials, and they go make their own fortified uh, cities, watchtowers to be able to ha- set up c- kind of similar locations there uh, to be able to help protect them. Um, so he, he, Bashar repeats there. Um, so again, we see uh, this... Uh, this uh, key that happens during this point. Now, I think one thing that we need to be able to understand again here is uh, we see Asa's response. Now, in Chronicles, Asa, previously, one of the things that we don't talk about in First Kings is there's another event that happens in Second Chronicles, and that is Asa actually defeats other countries and nations. He actually defeats them, not through power, but by trusting in the Lord. He has an army uh, twice the size of them, and they come and attack them, but they're defeated because of what the Lord uh, does and protects them. But again, we need to see these connection between these two stories. Remember where that gold and silver came from. We actually find out in verse 15 that it comes from Asa. He comes back to be able to give them to the house of the Lord. And then what happens is conflict and strife arises... Now, Asa had a pretty peaceful reign considering the length of his reign, 42 years. About uh, 36 years into this reign, this is when King Bashar comes in and attacks, we find out in Chronicles. And so during this time, now the end of his reign is struck with strife and, and conflict. So when he's hit with this no longer peaceful time, he goes, and instead of seeking to be able to worship God to be able to protect him, he takes the gold and the silver and he goes to a human uh, protector, uh, Ben-Hadad in Syria. And uh, we find out that he takes these treasures that he had donated, he'd given to the Lord in the king's house, and he gives them to his servants to be able to go take to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And he tells you right at the very I'm sending you a present of silver and gold. So here, Asus changes his his steps in that he seeks to be able to go and make these offerings to the Lord and bring them, put them in the temple. But when he's confronted with this thought of war, he then takes them and go makes human alliances. And we know exactly why he does this. In Chronicles, it's not speculation, we're told in Chronicles chapter 16. At that time, uh, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. So here again, a prophet confronts him. And uh, Asa actually doesn't respond well. He actually puts this prophet in stocks. But... What he actually says is the prophet turns to him and says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You have done foolish in this. For from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in stocks in prison. For he was enraged with him because of this. Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. So here Asa, in this time, doesn't respond how he did previously when he was confronted about the worship of God. He actually responds in a negative way. The thing that 
I think what's quite ironic in a lot of these things is the thing that people seek to be able to try and protect themselves from or to be able to flee from or to be able to find themselves out of is the exact same thing that brings them down. It's the exact same thing that destroys them. Asa did not want to be at war with Bashar. And yet, so he goes makes a human alliance instead of going to the Lord to be able to plead that the Lord would save him, as he did previously in his life. And yet, the consequence for this is actually his house will forever be at war. I think it's an interesting thing to be able to think about. But that comes us back to what the author of First Kings said. Here, he's going to and fro looking for someone who is blameless. Well, we know Asa is not blameless. How then can they say he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done? We see he's a sinful man. He doesn't completely reform the worship by taking away the high places. We see he's a foolish man. <laughs> he, he goes and makes this alliance with uh, uh, King Ben-Hadad in Syria. But he's not blameless. But yet, what we still see is that they, he still loves God. That the author can still write, he didn't take away the high places, nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. So again, that false dichotomy of good or bad is unhelpful in these situations. That you can have a heart that is wholly uh, true to the Lord all of your days and still falter and fail. Still have failure. But again, we see that conclusion there in verse 23 and 24. Now the rest of the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did and all the cities that he built... Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of Kings of Judah? But in his old age he was deceased in his feet, and Asa slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. I think it's helpful to be able to remember verse 14 in the light of all of this, all of his days. Even in his failure and his faults, he still loved the Lord wholly with his heart. Now his diseased feet, this uh, begins one of the, the periods of time. I think you have that overlap of, of a reign with Jehoshaphat coming in as a co-regent here at this period of time when his feet are there. I think it uh, could be a sign of the discipline of the Lord. We're not told specifically here. But again, he's not cut off like Saul was cut off. His son continues to reign. Um, Jehoshaphat, one of the cool names in the Bible, I think, um, not as cool as Ittite the Gittite, but uh, still, Jehoshaphat's still a good name. Uh, but as we finish every king's reign, we see this refrain. He slept with his fathers, buried with his fathers, and his son reigned in his place. And this seems like this boring, repetitious thing that we just, the author is like, well, how do I finish this period of reign? You know, how, how do I tell people we're moving on? The next king, and it's, it's a de- very deliberate, I think, phrase that they use. I think first, uh, just uh, two points of this. First, the practice here. Again, Second Chronicles tells us a little bit more detail of how it actually happens, particularly in Asa's burial. 
uh, quite unique, uh, Ace's burial is in, in Chronicles. But they buried him in the tomb he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier and that had been filled with various uh, kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art. And they made a very, a very great fire in his honor. So here we see the burial practice of how they went about this. Um, here uh, buried in the side of a tomb. Uh, he digs for himself, buried with uh, you know tombs in that period of time. They, they put the body in there to decompose. And then after they de- the body, the flesh decomposes, they take the bones and then put them uh, in, in a smaller spot. But here they're, they're buried in this period of time. So the, the practice of burial, um, I think, is, is helpful for us. But most importantly, I think there is the, the second, and that's the promise that's connected. When we read that he died, that he reigned this many years, and his son reigned in his place, we need to remember that here it's specifically David is mentioned again. David and his sons. He's buried with his father David and his son reigned in his place. There's, here's the continuation of that promise that is not yet finished, found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That promise that here a son is coming who is going to reign in his place. This is exactly the point Peter makes in, in uh, when his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, that he, he speaks about the patriarch David, that he was died and was buried. Again, this refrain that comes up, he, he died, he was buried with his father in the tomb with us to his day. So all of these kings not only are buried, David is still there in Jerusalem at this time, but here all of the sons and sons of David would have been buried and would have been able uh, to be seen or known. But therefore he calls David a prophet, and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his, own, his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he, uh, his flesh see corruption. And so we see here this promise of Jesus being the son who is dead, buried in a tomb, but yet when he is buried in his tomb, his flesh did not see corruption. He did not get abandoned to Hades. That here David speaks of a son who's going to be buried that is resurrected again. He says there in verse 32 that this Jesus God raised up that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being highly exalted at the right hand of God and having received the Father and the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So every time we hear this refrain that his son reigned in his place, we need to be reminded of that promise that his promise is not yet finished. In the kingdom of Israel, they'll, they'll change hands of whose son is reigning at all times. But David's son continues to reign on the throne in Jerusalem, where God has set his name. Now Asa is not that son who's going to reign forever. He sees corruption. Jehoshaphat, as you all know, is not the son who's going to reign forever. His flesh will see corruption. But finally we get to Jesus, and Peter highlights that point there in Acts chapter 2. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m., and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.